So let's kick off, make a few points relevant to the economy. And what I'd like to discuss um, in more depth is the economy, uh, inflation, interest rates, um, and the coronavirus. So looking at the economy generally, where are we? Well, happy to say that the economy remains in its sweet spot. Both the official data and anecdotal evidence remain highly positive. Uh, various stages of unlocking the economy have resulted in surges in the pace of economic activity over the past couple of months. So to give you some official figures, GDP in March, and that's actually before many of the restrictions were actually lifted, rose by 2.1% on the month. According to revised semi-official estimates um, in um, that was the, the March outer. Now, in April, the economy grew by another 2.3%. We've got the May figures due on Friday morning. And actually, our, our forecast is that we could actually see monthly growth of 2.5%. And if that's the case, that would leave the economy around 1.5% short of its pre-pandemic size in February last year. So we've made considerable progress there. Now, we do think that because of the remaining unwinding of the restrictions are likely to have less of a positive impact and we're at peak growth for the British economy. But even so, we're of the opinion that the pace of activity will remain buoyant. And that's not least because households on our estimates have something around £140 billion of excess savings in banks and building deposit societies which would not have been there had it not been for the pandemic and that will be supporting demand as a proportion of that we don't know how much will be spent so our gdp forecast for those of you that, that like numbers is 7.9 percent but it's entirely possible as i think i've said before on this webcast that we could see growth in excess of eight percent in the uk this year Secondly, what we've seen alongside the encouraging economic numbers is a rise in inflation. Now, this was always going to happen through the course of 2021, bearing in mind particularly that 2020 witnessed a, a number of big disinflationary factors, e.g. a collapse in energy prices, as I'm sure you remember, heavy retail discounting at times, and also temporary reductions to indirect taxation to support various areas of the economy, such as the hospitality sector. But the increase in CPI inflation, um, which has taken place from last August's low of plus 0.2% to 2.1% in May, has actually exceeded our own forecast and, and, and indeed other forecasters' expectations as well, including the Bank of England. And if you look at the profile for the remainder of the year, it's not impossible at all that we get to 3% at some stage. So the main question is here, does this actually signal a sudden but permanent upturn in inflation pressures? Now, we don't think so. And a couple of reasons for that is, firstly, the, the recovery in commodity prices has just been extraordinarily sharp. And even if you see a slowdown in the rate of ascent of those commodity prices, such as oil, what you'll see is a moderation in inflation. Now, an outright decline in commodity costs would actually result in a more rapid fall in the overall rate of consumer price inflation. Secondly, and I think we mentioned this a month or so ago, much of the story of strengthening price pressures is, is connected with low inventory levels. 
effectively what you've had is a big burst in demand as the, the economy's got unlocked. In the States, of course, you've had the stimulus checks, which have increased spending power all of a sudden. Um, but that burst in demand can't be met by existing stocks of um, goods, enabling wholesalers and retailers to raise their margins. But what we should see is as production rises, the supply-demand imbalance should fall away and inflation should ease back. Now, that applies, we think, as much to the situation in the United States as the UK, where, you know, for example, shortage of second-hand cars and trucks in the States is adding something like on its own 0.3% to US CPI inflation. So we think a lot of that is transitory. Indeed, prolonged inflation in developed economies is normally a result of overheating economic growth. When activity is very robust, as we've explained here, we're not at pre-pandemic levels of activity yet. And it, it's very rare to see inflation taking permanent hold without some sort of material tightening in the labour market. And certainly the situation here, there are a number of moving parts to what's happening in the labour market. Certainly conditions are getting tighter. But if you look at the rate of unemployment, at least the stated rate is 4.7%. And that's around one percentage point higher than at its trough back in 2019. In addition to that, you've got somewhere around one and a half million people on furlough who are classified as employed. And one of the critical developments domestically over the next few months will be what happens to these people, how many individuals on the CJRS, for example, are absorbed back into their own jobs, do they end up into other jobs, how many become unemployed as um, the CJRS is actually wound up. How will the Bank of England respond? Well, our reading of June's Monetary Policy Committee meeting was actually there was a slight hawkish tilt in members' assessment of the inflation outlook. But even so, and I know we've covered this in previous sessions, um, in short, the MPC is likely to wait to see how the labour market reacts, given its pivotal role in determining whether a burst in inflation is temporary or permanent. We don't think it's in a great hurry to tighten policy. Um, actually, if you listen to the tone of Andrew Bailey's press, um, Mansion House speech last week, um, that was the message he was putting across. That's his personal view. And indeed, history does show that the Bank of England doesn't react particularly quickly if it regards price shocks to be temporary. So, for example, we, if, it, if you've sort of cast your mind back to 2008, 2011, we actually had bursts of inflation above 5% at those points, and we didn't see increases in interest rates. And our expectation still is that the committee will wait until next spring to tighten policy. We still don't know whether the MPC will begin by cutting QE, i.e. selling gilts, or raising rates first. And in 2017, I think it was, it raised rates. Our working assumption is that it will try and pare back its balance sheet first, i.e pay back some of the QE and perhaps wait a year before actually lifting the bank rate. But, you know, another option we're beginning to consider is that the Bank of England's first move will be a combination of both, i.e. a small um, hike in rates and some shrinking of the balance sheet. So those are thoughts on interest rates. The last thing I'd like to mention is COVID and specifically, could the upturn in cases in the UK begin to derail the recovery? Well, yesterday's number of reported cases 
in the UK was 29,000, very close to it. And if you look at that on a rolling week, on rolling week basis, um, it's in, eased back to 49%. But obviously, this is still extremely high territory. And yesterday, the new health secretary, Sajid Javid, um, said that admitted that daily cases could actually reach 100,000. Um, especially, I think, given the, the, the planned ending of most of the remaining restrictions on the 19th of July. Um, the peak at the end of last year, I think, in daily cases was around 80,000. So we're talking about new territory here. And clearly what is critical and what the government is banking on is that the success of the vaccination programme um, means that the, the link between infections and hospitalizations has been weakened as younger people you know at least on average don't contract covid as seriously as older people and actually our own statistical work suggests that that relationship has indeed shifted for the better since around may but you know of course this could change if a new strain emerges or if long covid becomes more of an issue and it has to be said that the next opening up um, of the economy planned, as I said, on the 19th of July, does appear to carry a few risks. So, in summary, our baseline case is that the UK economy has probably gone past peak growth, but 2021 is still set to outperform most expectations. The BOE is probably more aware of stronger price pressures, but believes still that most of them are transitory, echoing the view of the Fed in that respect. And on COVID, there does seem to be a much weaker link between cases and severe contractions. And obviously, we hope that that remains the case. So those are a few of our views regarding the economy. Let's now turn to our market pr practitioner, um, John Wynne Evans, um, for your insights. Um, John, would you like to share a few thoughts on the equity market? Um, certainly. Thank you very much, Phil. And uh, good morning, everybody. And I think, you know, one thing I was thinking when Phil started talking, when, when you talk about the economy, um, you know, a lot of the data that comes out on the economy is actually, you know, fairly historic by the time it arrives, certainly the official data. These days, you know, we rely an awful lot more on uh, things, you know, sort of Google tracking data and uh, what's going on on apps and restaurant bookings and all that sort of stuff. So it's no doubt about the fact we get more interesting real-time economic data now than we ever used to in the past. So the market could be much more reactive to that than it has been historically. Uh, but of course, financial markets, stock markets in particular, are forward-looking beasts. And I think it's fair to say that quite often, you know, people are somewhat flummoxed by the fact that uh, what can be going on in the economy doesn't bear much resemblance uh, to what's going on in financial markets. And especially through last year, um, you know, when things were pretty bad and we're looking at these very you know, negative GDP figures, people were often asking, why on earth is the market going up? Um, we may get, well get to a similar station, a situation this year when, you know, GDP growth numbers are whopping year on year, as Phil has been talking about, and yet the market may not necessarily go up uh, in that environment. So it's that sort of uh, looking ahead and discounting factor uh, that the market plays. And I think if we go back, certainly, you know, to the back end of last year, beginning of this year, for those of you who would have heard me speak before and, and seen the stuff that we write, we were talking about something that we called the, the BVB trade, um, the Biden vaccine Brexit uh, trade. So basically taking three 
kind of big imponderables and uncertainties which we thought were going to be resolved as we went through the, the back end of last year and into the beginning of this year. So, you know, was, would it be Trump or Biden? It was Biden um, and the markets were generally happy with that. Uh, you don't get all the uncertainties that you had with Trump and then you've got the potential for a lot of fiscal stimulus coming through, uh, particularly in infrastructure projects. Um, uh, uh, the vaccine trade was all about the reopening and that really kicked off last November once we got the uh, trial data through uh, and saw how positive that was. And then Brexit was obviously all about, you know, whether or not we would uh, get a deal with Europe at the last minute as we did or whether things would fall off a cliff. So all of those three things were actually resolved very positively in the end. And actually, you know, cast your mind back uh, almost exactly six months. We had, uh, remember, the Georgia uh, state runoff uh, for the last two Senate seats, which both fell to the Democrats, giving them uh, effective control uh, of the Senate as well. It all seems like ancient history now, but at the time it was, uh, you know, all extremely important. So I think if we look back on the first half of the year, um, the, the the key thing about markets, I think the, the two quarters of the half so far have been quite contrasting, actually. Uh, the first quarter of the year was very much about the reflation trade. Um, it was value stocks, cyclical stocks, or what we'd also call short duration stocks uh, that were leading the market up. Uh, and uh, sort of longer duration growth stocks and technology shares uh, certainly kind of, you know, failed to participate in that run up in the market um, in the first quarter. So certainly when you look at the overall index levels, they're not entirely representative of what's going on uh, beneath the surface. Think of the old metaphor of the, the, uh, the graceful swan, but all the paddling that's going on underneath the surface, as it were. Um, things have certainly shifted a little bit as we've moved through the second quarter. Um, what we found there is that the market was already beginning to think about, you know, when is the uh, when are the central banks going to start sort of withdrawing liquidity? Maybe we've seen the peak of fiscal stimulus coming through, uh, and then also some uncertainties about the pace of recovery. And I think particularly the uh, proliferation of the Delta variant uh, of the COVID virus has uh, been quite important within all of this because uh, as it sort of has ripped through uh, various economies one by one, actually particularly started in India, uh, but in the Western economies, it's the UK that has uh, been at the forefront of it, um, showing the risks to the reopening and perhaps the potential kind of two speed reopening that we can get as well. We're already seeing, you know, are people with vac you know, double vaccination be able to participate in the economy faster, for example, um, you know, what's going to happen to international travel, uh, these sorts of things. There's still a, a huge amount of imponderables um, and uh, obviously the difficulty in getting staff. I think that's one of the really interesting things that's happened in the first, you know, six months of the year. Uh, we're seeing it in the UK where, you know, the reopening trade and a lot of the hospitality industries is being slowed down by the fact that so people can't get either front or back of house staff. Apparently there's a shortage of chefs uh, in the UK at the moment, for example. Uh, in the United States, which is really the kind of key market for the world in terms of what will happen with uh, inflation and, and bond deals, uh, for example, uh, there you've got a lot of people still unable to return to the labour markets uh, because of inability to get childcare sufficiently and, and enough flexibility around their work. Uh, and it may well be that these people don't properly enter the workforce again uh, until uh, maybe September. 
And um, what we're seeing there is sort of, you know, wage pressures picking up. And you all heard stories about uh, various large retail organisations offering sign-on bonuses and higher wages and all sorts of incentives uh, to get staff. So certainly there's, you know, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty um, about how this is all going to play out. But I think the key thing is that the trend is going to be upwards, obviously, and we're going to continue to have recovery coming through. And it could actually have some quite long legs to it. Uh, in fact, I mean, you know, people are looking for six percent growth for the global economy this year, around about four and a half percent growth in 2022. Uh, the expectations for global um, earnings per share to grow just shy of 40 percent this year, and then you know at, at least another 10 percent in 2022. And it's very rare that you get a major stock market setback um, in, in an environment where you've got that sort of strength of, of growth happening. Um, I think the uh, other big thing that has happened in the last few weeks, which definitely merits some attention, is the shift in the stance of the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and what that has done to markets. So basically, there was a lot of thought prior to that, and a lot of the talk that was coming out of the Fed was that they were going to allow the, the economy to run hot for a while, uh, to maybe uh, allow inflation over an average, over a longer period to average uh, it's sort of 2% target. And obviously, as it's been in shortfall for quite some time, that would allow inflation to run, you know, well over 2% for an undefined period. And there were fears beginning to build that the Fed was losing control of uh, the inflation narrative and that actually that would give us, you know, higher and more persistent inflation uh, in the future. Um, but at the last meeting, the Fed definitely had a little bit of a, it was fairly subtle shift in policy, but it had a big reverberation in which they've effectively said, no, we'll, we're not going to tolerate that. I think we will uh, look to, um, you know, to rein in uh, liquidity sooner rather than later, if that's the case. And what that has done is to um, send uh, bond yields uh, quite substantially lower um, over the last uh, few weeks. And that's put the PEP back into uh, the more sort of, you know, growthy and techie end uh, of the market. Um, uh, for, for the last few weeks as well. So say, you know, when you look at these sort of headline indices, um, you don't always get the full story of what's going on um, underneath the surface. I think as we look, you know, forward to events over the next few months, uh, we're still very fully invested uh, in equities. Um, you could say part of the problem is, is that you can't get a decent return on cash or on bonds at the moment. So to some degree, as investors who are looking for a return and to be able to meet our long term liabilities uh, in terms of you know pensions and everything uh, that we have to take a bit more risk in portfolios these days. So we're fully cognizant um, of that risk. Uh, I think over the summer, the key thing now will be to see just what the persistence of um, you know the, this inflationary spike is. Um, I'm feeling it's quite possible that it might be a little bit more persistent than the market is entirely comfortable with, um, but uh, that it will uh, you know definitely we may well have seen the peaks of inflation um, already, particularly in the US, where we had a you know five percent CPI spike up. Um, in the May data, uh, for example, and the market certainly is sort of taking that view that the, the peak is pretty much um, already in. Um, but we're kind of expecting to see a little bit more broadening out of the market again 
as we go through the summer, but it could well be a little bit of a wait and see time um, as we just wait to see how quickly economies sort of do reopen um, and uh, and how the central banks uh, react to that. But um, at the moment, there's you know no feeling that we have to reach for the tin helmets uh, or anything along, along those particular lines. So um, hopefully, you know, we can dig a bit more into this in the Q&A later on, uh, but I wish all now hand back to Phil. Absolutely. Thanks very much, John. And certainly on the Fed, I think markets will be paying very close attention to the minutes from the FOMC, which are released this evening for more granularity about the Fed's discussions. OK, um, now let's hear for some views on currency markets from Chris Bad. Chris. Hi, guys. Yeah, um, I guess we probably look back towards the back end of last year to start with. Brexit was obviously still a theme that was quite prominent in our minds. Um, we had seen a bit of a rally, especially in sterling dollar towards the end of the year. Um, but that kind of waned towards the sort of January time. It was kind of priced in at that point. And the Brexit story for us became a bit of a sideshow. It was clearly overshadowed by the pandemic and all things that were going on there. So it became less forefront in our minds. What we did see, we saw a shift towards the vaccine rollout as being the main market driver. We saw quite a lot of sterling strength coming in, especially in the first part of the year. Um, and that was based on the the earliness that the UK was um, pushing out its rollout um, and how quickly we were doing it. And we saw that quite evident in sterling euro. What we saw, we saw sterling euro rise from 110 to 118 rather quickly, actually. But there was kind of two parts of that story. There was the UK story, the vaccine rollout going really well, but there was also the sluggishness of the Eurozone um, and how they were doing the rollout. Obviously, you remember they had all the issues with the AstraZeneca, their commitments to providing vaccines, and it was received um, quite slow and quite far behind what the UK was doing. And so that's what was the main, main driver for Stern Euro up to that point. Obviously, that changed a little bit as, um, you know, Eurozone has caught up quite a bit and we are trading around 116.50-ish area now. Um, and we're seeing economies open up. And what we have also seen really is at a time we saw a bit of a shift away from the dollar. So beforehand, we saw quite a lot of money going into the dollar as safe haven and other safe haven currencies. And as these economies started opening up and the vaccine rollout was going well, we saw a shift a little bit out of that dollar and we saw quite a few people predicting a weaker dollar across the board. We saw sterling dollar rise to 142.48. Um, that was largely on the back of that. But things changed quite quickly. And I think we just mentioned before about the FOMC recently. What we saw is that dot plot change. And that was a key thing for the FX markets. We'd already had some like, inflationary worries creeping into the market. And there was talk about um, like how inflation is going to affect us. Um, but we've been reassured by the Fed to say that it was transitory and we're going to overlook and we're happy to overshoot. So when we saw this dot plot shift, it did catch the market quite a bit by surprise. And we saw quite an exaggerated move. We saw sterling dollar go down to around a 138 and just a little bit below on the back of it. Um, so it really was a little bit of a surprise. It was what they did to what they were saying was what caught the market out. And so we've seen a bit of a shift, really, from probably the beginning of the year, we were thinking, weaker dollar as we move from the safe haven of currencies to kind of basically a stronger dollar and when are they going to taper um we saw a dollar index rise from 89.60 to 92.60 and the dollar moved about three percent against things like the sterling euro so there really were quite some big moves on the back of it 
I think for us, as um, we mentioned earlier, that the FOMC minutes are tonight, that's going to be a real big event for us. I think we're going to look quite closely at the detail. I think if the if the signal's there that basically the taper is going to come a bit sooner, I think we might be at risk of hitting some key levels in euro dollar and sterling dollar. I think the support levels around 116 in euro dollar and 135 in sterling dollar, these are quite big levels that could be under attack if we do see that kind of shift um, in expectations. But I guess it's not only the Fed uh, looking to uh, taper. You've got other central banks are in the same situation. Um, following the FOMC last time, the focus basically went on to the Bank of England and what they was going to say. Um, when will they taper? When will rate rises occur for the UK? Um, so there were some worries there that might follow suit. I think what we saw afterwards was um, the Governor Bailey really kind of downplaying things a little bit. He's basically kind of said that the surging growth that we've seen on the reopening of the economy is not going to last and we're going to see slower growth in the future. And he's also warned members not to overreact to temporary inflation. So that's another factor that really um, helps sterling dollar push a little bit lower um, in basically in the last month or so. These kind of comments that we are on a wait and see in the Bank of England, whereas the Fed, I guess, are a little bit more active um, in what they're doing. So I guess going forward, um, focus for us, inflation, I think is the same for everyone at the moment. We know the path that's been set now. We know that they're going to taper, especially the, the Fed, uh, the FOMC mentioned, um, and we're priced in sooner rate hikes. Um, we know they're going to taper at some point, so it's just about timing from now on. Um, at the moment, it feels like the Fed might be the first in, in what they're doing from what we've heard um for certainly for the major economies um so then we kind of look at what dates are might important what dates might we get this kind of um discussions so one of the dates historically that we've seen is the jackson hole event and that's been a key one where they've announced policy shifts so that's going to be at the end of august so that might tie in quite nicely with the timing that they might want to talk about tapering um you know a bit deeper so that could be a key event for us that we're going to watch out for um Obviously, we're going to hang on every word that gets said, and the FOMC minutes tonight are going to be very important for us. Um, back home in the UK, I guess the end of restrictions have been quite a key thing. The economy's open up. That's going to be very supportive for the economy, but there's still going to be some bumps in the road. I don't think it's going to be plain sailing. I think this Delta variant is an issue. Um, I think there's going to be a spike in infections, as you know, even the government admit there's going to be. I think there's going to be a worry for people further down the line. I think the other thing we need to be aware of that the furlough scheme ends in September and that's going to basically make um, the employment numbers interesting. Um, I find it hard to believe that we're going to get hundreds of percent of the people that are on furlough all returning to work. I just don't see that happening. I think there's going to be some people don't make it back. So on the other hand, I think we mentioned earlier basically that the um, vacancies that are in things like farming and retail and jobs are being hard to fill. You know, how do we get people in those roles? Well, Will that lead to wage growth? Do we need to pay bigger money to get these people in these jobs? Will we get inflation through wage growth? So I think for the Bank of England and the government as well, I guess, that they've got a balance, really, this recovery and not doing things too early until the caution about inflation. So I think from both, they're going to remain cautious and this kind of wait and see attitude is what we're going to have um, domestically. Um, I think something to bear in mind in when we look at the currency strengths we have to bear in mind 
relative to other currencies. So for the pound example, we're talking about actually is you know there's some good news stories we're coming out of the lockdowns, but if we compare that to the US, you know they're going through the same situation. They are highly vaccinated. They are you know coming out of these lockdowns, and we're going to be on a similar path. And um, I think for us, the timing of who does what when is going to be the main focus. Who blinks first? Which one's going to um, uh, react? And that's going to be the driver. So we might even each other out over time, but the initial reaction and the initial market moves are going to be about who goes first. So I guess the highlights really I want to point out really is that we're going to get some volatility around key data events. I think we need to be watching CPI data, employment data, central bank meetings. They're going to be the high volatility points for the currencies. I think there's a risk that we might get some lulls in between as we are waiting for these data points. So we could get periods of less activity. But I think we need to be aware that there are going to be these spikes in volatility at certain key points. So I think it'd be good if you guys speak to your dealers and they can help for you when these points are coming up. We do have different products we can use to help manage these risks. So we have things like leave orders and dynamic hedging and other products that we can use to help mitigate these kind of um, high spikes in volatility. So I guess that's kind of it really. We are going to be very much data dependent, focusing on inflation, focusing on central bank speakers and just extra caution on these increased volatility periods. Thank you. Chris, thanks very much for that. Um, we're now at the point where we can take some questions and answers. We've got just over 10 minutes, I think. So we'll try and rattle through as, as many as we can. And one question that's already come through, which um, I think is probably directed towards me, is that we're talking about um, the, the journey of the Fed being closer to unwinding its emergency assistance and eventually tightening. Um, why is it then that uh, 10-year Treasury bond yields are around 40 basis points lower than at the peak in March? That's a very good question. And I think there's a two-pronged answer, which is partly, number one, that markets are a bit less concerned that inflation is going to be permanent. That's helped. And secondly, that actually the Fed moving towards tightening, perhaps a little bit quicker than previously thought, is encouraging markets to say, well, OK, we could have slightly higher interest rates in the short term, but that will limit the effect or actually limit what the Fed has to do over the medium term, as well as pushing down inflation in the medium term. So that's probably contributed very strongly to the fall in Treasury yields. There might be some very technical factors in, in over the last 24 hours or so. But actually, if you prior to yesterday, if you, if you looked at short dated bonds, actually yields have been higher than they've been, perhaps not than in March, but certainly um, higher than a month or two ago. And that's consistent with the let's move a little bit earlier. We'll have to do less later on. Um, a couple more questions coming through. Uh, one for John here. Um, do you see a bubble forming in European um, stock valuations, uh, perhaps um, particularly tech valuations? What, what are your thoughts there? 
Okay, thanks for that, Phil. Um, now, we've been adamant that there is no bubble currently visible um, in the sort of, you know, in the aggregate markets. I know it's very difficult when you've got markets sitting at all time highs, particularly in the US, the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. Obviously, that's um, not something we've got in the UK at the moment. And with the UK sort of tech sector still only being about 1% of the market, this is definitely not a sort of UK phenomenon, um, as it were. Um, and even in Europe, you know, tech is only sort of six or seven percent of the market over there. And actually the biggest tech stock in Europe is ASML, uh, which makes the equipment from which you make semiconductors. And therefore, um, I think it's got probably quite a good future ahead of it um, at the moment on that basis, because we have a global semiconductor shortage. So in many respects, I think the question really goes to the US uh, with, you know, the FANG stocks and whether or not we are going to be you know, another sort of tech bust as we saw um, back in 2000, uh, for example. And I think, that, you know, one of the massive differences, well, there are two massive differences between now and then. Uh, one is that you've got a big core of companies that are hugely profitable uh, at this point and will continue to be profitable for some time ahead. So we've definitely got a different sort of outlook now uh, from that point of view. And secondly is, um, as I referred to earlier, it's, you know, where interest rates and bond yields are. Um, it's easy to forget that back in 2000, the US 10-year Treasury yield was 6%, uh, and now it's currently about 1.4, 1.35, 1.4. So that's an enormous uh, difference there in terms of the fact that you use to discount all those uh, future earnings that are coming through. Um, yes, there are speculative pockets in the market, certainly, you know, and as, as I mentioned, whether it's kind of, you know, cryptos, which is a whole subject in itself, or meme stocks, things like GameStop, um, you know, the SPACs, uh, for example, these sorts of things where I guess, you know, there is probably too much liquidity sloshing around, um, but they're not in, in even in aggregate, all of those things big enough, I don't think, to score, to cause any systemic risk to markets, um, as we've potentially seen in the past. That's a great answer. Thanks very much, John. Next question is for Chris. And Chris, do you see uh, markets um, shifting out of safe haven currencies um in particular the dollar at the moment um i think we saw a bit of that at the beginning of the year um so i think we have seen a large part of that already i think you know as the vaccine rollout goes well and the economy open up we will see that shift i do think it's going to be offset by the things that the fed are doing and the fomc so i think it's going to be a bit tricky to balance it out um but the places I think we will get to is as there is more confidence in the market and we see this recovery and there's a bit more data shows that we are you know, on our way out. I think we're going to look at Macy towards high yielding currencies again. I mean, it does seem like we ebb and flow between this kind of thing. You know, as we see it in the round of times, you know, that's a popular uh, currency for a high yielder. So, um, yes, I think we will do. I think we'll see more of it. Um, but I fear it's going to be somewhat offset by what is happening at the Fed and all this um, taper talk. I think if the taper talk dies down and you just see the recovery and people are reassured that they're not going to be hiking rates so soon, um, then you might see more of it. Um, but at the moment, I feel like it's being offset at the moment. Okay. Now, thanks very much for that. Um, question, which I don't know, perhaps I'll, I'll take it, um, which is Nissan's creation of a battery factory next door to its electric vehicle production line in London. Um, is Is this to protect the certificate of origin as, as the UK. Um, I'm, I'm not a car industry expert, but from talking to people in the Northeast, um, I think my uh, 
judgment would be that Nissan's um, market in the UK is actually relatively large compared with the rest of Europe and relative to other major car producers. So it makes sense for them, I think, or this is what I've been told to um, base their production in the UK to, to minimize trade frictions. And I think, you know, what, what that tells you is that in terms of um, trade barriers, if you like Brexit specifically, um, it, the situation isn't a, a one-way street, which, which often you hear um, in various commentary. Um, one here um, for John, and perhaps I'll have a quick word as well um, at the end of it. And it's, uh, John, Western governments, um, they are perhaps looking at 5% inflation for the next 10 years, um, alongside low interest rates to solve the debt issue. Where, where would that leave the bond market and, and equities? Um, with respect to you know discounted cash flows and uh, current valuations. Um, yeah, well, this is the idea of financial repression, isn't it? Um, the thought that the one easy way to get out—well, I say easy, the, maybe the, the simplest—to um, to get out of the debt burdens that we're currently carrying um, is to sort of grow the nominal economy faster um, than the rate of interest rates. And if that's the case, um, you know, it's it's like the old boiling frog analogy, um, as it were. Your wealth suddenly, you know, but disappears a little bit over a long time. And hopefully, you don't really notice it that much but you wake up in 10 years time and think blimey I haven't got as much spending power as I had um, and it, it in many respects it is I mean if uh, you know my money it's the highest probability outcome as to how they try to play this but it does involve a lot of collusion uh, between uh, you know treasury ministers and governments and central banks uh, to make that happen and it will you know require rates to be repressed um, over that period. Um, so we're still not sure necessarily that it will happen, but it, it sort of smells as if things are moving as somewhat in that direction. And certainly, I think, given the debt burdens that we have in the world at the moment in both public and private sectors, um, there's only so far that rates will be able to go up before you know it, it puts something of a break um, on the economy. Um, I think the idea of you know 5% inflation is a little bit punchy, uh, to be fair. Um, but um, certainly, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised to you know, see a, a, an average positive, you know, positive gap between inflation rates and what's available on bonds and cash over that period. Um, and if that is the case, that should mean, you know, that, um, you know, financial assets don't really come under that sort of pressure, at least the risk assets. Uh, in terms of equities, uh, if that's the case. But um, as I said earlier, it does force investors to take on more risk in portfolios than they might historically um, have been willing to do. Uh, Phil, what's your thought on that? Yeah, um, certainly the Fed is going to run inflation above 2% as a deliberate aim because it's got a restated mandate that it's trying to average 2% inflation over the longer term. And what we've had over the previous decade, really in terms of the inflation measure, the PCE measure, which the Fed looks at, is um, below 2% and therefore to average out, you're, you're going to be running inflation a little bit above that for a while. Again, I think with you, John, I agree 5% um, a bit on the high side. Uh, one problem is that if investors believe that will be the case, then there's a lot of refinancing to follow all the large deficits we've been seeing and that refinancing um, will be expensive for governments in terms of borrowing rates if investors lose confidence. And of course, a certain proportion of government's outstanding liabilities are linked to the price index and index linked gilts in the UK, I think are around 25% of the outstanding debt stock. So 
I think we'll have higher inflation for a while, but I'm not convinced that that will be a deliberate aim over a long period of time. Okay, in terms of another question, um, tricky one coming up here. I'll try and give a very quick answer because we're running out of time. How should we be thinking about artificial intelligence and its potential effects on GDP, labor markets, and productivity? Um, you know, perhaps that's a great idea for a, for a specialist economic webinar over the remainder of the year. But initial thought here, um, you know, if AI gets sufficiently advanced, then yes, it will um, help to solve the labor productivity issue, which has been a problem since the post-financial crisis era. But of course, what you then have is you have potentially exacerbated um, income differentials, which, as we've seen, not just in the UK and the US, but elsewhere, has been a major political problem. So um, you can see some solutions and some problems being caused by um, a big rollout of um, advanced artificial intelligence. Um, I think one final question, John, we've got time for a quick answer. Um, I'll try and sneak, sneak this one in. Do you think that the recent um, bid for Morrison's shows in, uh, investors are looking for sectors where there's, there's real value? Was, do you think it's driven by valuation and is this the start of a trend? Um, yeah, well, it's very interesting because we've got this sort of high profile situation now in the UK with a you know a household name being bid for. I think quite often you get companies being bid for that um, are actually very important to the UK economy, but nobody's ever heard of them. Uh, this is probably not so important in many respects to the UK economy, but most people have heard of it. Um, and there's no doubt about the fact that, you know, for a private equity bidder, which we're seeing in this case, or potentially several private equity bidders who are vying uh, to buy Morrison's, this is um, you know an interesting asset. Um, part of the kind of um, attraction of it is that it is a very financially conservative, or has been a very financially conservative company. Um, it owns pretty much all the freeholds um, of its stores. Uh, so someone you know who's willing to come along and buy it and sell off those stores and do sale and leasebacks and get an immediate payback um, on their investment, for example. Um, and you know the, the question is, in, a, for in the in the public markets, this is not always sort of um, you know valued fully as it were, and it, it needs catalyst to come along in the form of uh, private equity buyers and this is what we've seen here there's a similar you know deal being done recently with uh, asda uh, changing hands um, as well um, you know all sorts of questions about whether this is for the you know the greater good and the social good or whether it's just financial engineering um, but long and short of it is uh, private equity is being given more money currently by uh, pension fund mandates. Uh, there are, you know, globally probably some of the region about two and a half trillion dollars of dry powder sitting in private equity funds at the moment looking for a home. So we're more likely to see more deals. And certainly in the UK, quite a lot of the deals we've seen in the last 12 months have been private equity driven. Um, I think, though, part of the thing sort of things is there a kind of one-off revaluation uh, which can only be done in this way um, and I still think for the longer term you know the, the, the better way to look at investing is looking for companies that can continue to compound growth um, over a long period of time and I'm still not entirely sure that that is necessarily the uh, UK supermarket sector. Okay thanks very much for a really good answer and a brief answer at that. And that's all we have time for in this session. So thank you very much to everybody for attending.
and also of course to John Wynne Evans and Chris Brand for their insights. In terms of the next economics webcast, we plan to return in September. So goodbye, keep safe, enjoy the summer and see you next time. Bye now.